When I followed Jesus, the pain in my life finally had a purpose. I was born with scoliosis. They call it idiopathic infantile scoliosis. And when I was about a year old, uh, my spine was starting to curve fairly severely. They had to save my life, so they um, started operations right away. In the end, I had 18 total surgeries. I felt really angry at God for what had happened to me. I didn't understand why he would do something like that to me um, and put me through so much. The turning point for me, um, I went to Kenya on a missions trip. It just kind of opened my eyes <laughs> to something other than me. I saw God working. I saw you know, the people there love God so much. And I just opened my eyes and going, Hey, like these people, they are trusting God that they will have food on their table. And I'm over here like complaining because like I have scoliosis. All of a sudden, like my life seemed really silly. Like all my, you know, my anger and everything about what had happened to me just seemed like so, so silly. And I didn't, I didn't need to have it anymore. I didn't need to carry it around anymore. After that trip, when I got home, my mindset definitely changed. I was able to see that instead of this condition being like a burden. It could be a source of hope for people and God could actually use me and use my story like for his glory. I went to um, Ghana this last November and I got to hang out with kids who have severe scoliosis and so I got to kind of talk with them and get to know them and play with them. There was one guy, he has scoliosis. He looks at me, he goes, how did you do it? I didn't know what he was talking about. It's like, how did I do what? He goes, how did you do it? All those surgeries. And I went, okay, here's an opportunity to tell him about God and kind of my experience. And I told him, you know what? God is what got me through. God is the reason why I'm standing here. And God is the reason why I can walk. Because they told me I wouldn't ever walk. So trust me when I say, God is taking care of you. And he just looked at me like, wow, <laughs> like he'd never heard that before. And that was special for me. I got to spread the word of God through a mutual experience where I had never met anybody who was going through scoliosis surgery like me. And God used me, like me of all people, like who would have thunk? You know, after so many years of hating him and just walking away from it, he, he actually used me. Holly Burke and I follow Jesus. Love it. If you have a Bible, let's go to 1 Kings chapter 17. What I love about Holly's story, that's the kind of the theme of our uh, this the, kind of season in our church is to follow Jesus. And, and what I love uh, is so often following Jesus doesn't mean immunity from suffering. It means God's faithfulness in the midst of it. And Holly's story is our story because whatever it is, whatever disappointment, whatever pain, whatever grief, uh, that becomes an area of such incredible ministry because the scriptures so clearly say whatever comfort you've received with that comfort others. And so, Holly, thank you for sharing that. And proud of you. I know it's always hard to watch yourself on screen. Yeah, that's why I never turn around personally. 
But we want to be a community that tells stories like this. So if, if God's doing amazing stuff and it's surprising you because you feel so ordinary and so average, those are the stories we want to tell because we're not looking for heroes. We're just looking for people who are willing to be faithful. And uh, if you have stories like that, we'd love to hear them and tell them. Now, speaking of stories, we're going to look at one here. First Kings chapter 17. We'll start in verse 1 and then jump down to verse 7. We're going to meet a prophet named Elijah. 1 Kings 17, verse 1. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab. Now, Ahab was a king of Israel who was totally, totally rebellious, disobedient, idolatrous. He was one of the worst of the worst. And Elijah is going to announce some judgment against him. He says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. In other words, as a result of Israel's apostasy and rebellion, judgment in the form of a drought and famine is going to strike the land. Now, immediately after he announces this, Elijah leaves (laughs) because that's not exactly good news for this king. And as, uh, jump down to verse 7. And as that drought and famine hits, notice, sometime later the brook that Elijah had been staying near dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came near to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called him, please bring me a piece of bread. She responds, as surely as the Lord your God lives. So this isn't, uh, this is somebody outside of Israel. This isn't a follower of Yahweh. This is, she recognizes that Elijah serves a different God. She says, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we might eat our last meal together and die. All right, so that's how bad the famine is. Elijah shows up and says, hey, could you get me some, uh, some water and could you make a bit of bread for me? And she says, um, a bit of bread, that's like going to me and my son and then we're going to die of starvation. Elijah said, don't be afraid, go home and do as I have said. But first... Uh, Excuse me, don't be afraid, go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me and then bring it to me. Now, do you see what he's asking her to do? Take the little tiny bit of food you have left and give it to me. A foreigner who worships a different God. Now, you have to understand, in her imagination, the gods only existed in certain geographical regions. So the God of Israel was only effective where? In Israel, if you went outside of Israel, that God wasn't effective any longer. And so he's asking her to take a step of faith that hardly any of us would ever be willing to take. What you were going to fix for you and your child, give to me. And crazily enough, Elijah said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain. She went away and did what Elijah told her to do. So there was food every day for Elijah and the woman for the jar of flour was not used up. 
uh, and uh, the uh, jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. An incredible Old Testament story of a woman who has no reason to do this except for some sort of ruthless faith that the God of Israel is active outside of Israel. Go, if you would, to 2 Kings chapter 5. That one should be easier to find. 2 Kings chapter 5. Now, Elijah gives his ministry to a man named Elisha, just to keep it kind of in the name realm. And, um, and in, uh, in 2 Kings chapter 5, we meet a man named Naaman. Naaman was a commander of the armies of a foreign nation that had been at war with Israel. So it's not just that he's a foreigner, it's that he's a foreigner who's a soldier, and he's not just a soldier, he's a commander. So this guy was like triply bad. He's got leprosy. He'd, he'd raided Israel and captured some slaves, and one of those slaves said, hey, you should go to Israel. There, you can receive healing from leprosy in Israel. So this guy goes to his king. Notice chapter uh, 5, verse 4. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And so Naaman goes, he packs up a bunch of money. And then he goes, verse 6, the letter uh, that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. The king of Israel read this and tore his robes, which was a sign of like lament, offense, or grieving, and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring someone back to life? Why does this other king send someone to me to be healed of leprosy? See, now he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have this man, Naaman, come to me and he will know that there is a prophet, a real prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Now, what Elisha should have done, according to ancient Near Eastern custom, was to have so a significant a visitor required that Elisha go out, meet him himself, throw a banquet in his honor, show him every hospitality. But instead, what Elisha does, Elisha sent a messenger. So Elisha doesn't even go meet with him himself. Elisha said a servant and said to Naaman, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River, your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. This was hugely offensive. So in the first story, a prophet was asking this widow to trust the God of Israel outside of the borders of Israel with their last bit of food. Here, the prophet is asking a very proud man to humble himself. And notice the king's initial response. Not the king, but the general. Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over my spot and cure me of leprosy. Are not the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash there and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. But his servant said to him, "Uh, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, wouldn't you have done it? How much more then when he tells you wash and be cleansed? So Naaman went down, dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, the man of God had to- as the man of God had told him, and the flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. So two examples, seeming totally random, of prophets that ministered to people outside of the nation of Israel. Go if you would to Isaiah 61. 
If you're, not, if you're not sure of what we're doing, we're just doing pieces of background before we get to our text in Luke today. Isaiah 61. Now, good morning. Are you guys out there? I mean, are, are you as tired as I feel? Okay, good. Yeah, and I don't want to hear it from some of you Californians. Oh, you should have been at Northridge. Oh, you know, Midwestern. Oh, you make fun of us for cold. I'll still make fun of you of how cold you are when it's 60 degrees out. But my kids, it was the children. It was the children that were traumatized, doggone it. Hold me, yes! That's right, yes. Here's what I love. Here's what I love we do. An earthquake comes and it's a race to social media. Say earthquake! Like nobody else knows, you know what I mean? It's just awesome. So Nate and I had so much fun uh, just shouting things in social media, just random things because we were, you know, anyway. All right, you don't care randomness. Isaiah 61. Now, Isaiah really comes in two parts. The first part of Isaiah is warnings of impending judgment to the nation of Israel uh, and the recognition that it was their disobedience that sent them into exile, their idolatry that sent them into exile. And then once you hit Isaiah 40, there are words of comfort that promise a restoration to the nation of Israel. And, And one of the images... Uh, given to the nation of Israel is that God was going to do for them what he had commanded them to do for generations in terms of something called the year of Jubilee. Now, Jubilee was uh, something that was to be celebrated every 50 years. The year of Jubilee was the year when prisoners were released, debts were canceled, and slaves were set free, and all the land that had swapped during those 50 years went back to the original owner. Okay, so... We can understand why we don't have a record that Israel actually did this. Because, because, I mean, it's unbelievably radical. But Jubilee became a picture of what God would do for the nation of Israel when their exile was finally over. He was going to cancel their debts, restore them back to the land, take them out of slavery. Are you with me on this point? Central to that picture is Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, notice, verse 1. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now the poor here doesn't just mean the economically disadvantaged. Poor, the word that is used here, means anyone humble enough to admit their need for God. Anyone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. The meek, in other words. Those people that are disadvantaged, not just economically, but in any way, shape, or form. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim freedom for the captives. Now remember, the people reading this wouldn't have thought freedom from captivity was metaphorical. Freedom from captivity meant we're literally sovereign again as a nation Israel. To proclaim freedom from uh, the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now that's a reference to Jubilee. Central to the restoration of Israel was this year of Jubilee imagery that God would cancel debts, restore the land, and so on, so on, so on. And notice, to proclaim the the year of the Lord's favor and what? Mumble, mumble, mumble. The day of vengeance of our God. So Jubilee, this eschatological Jubilee was good news for two reasons. Reason number one, our fortunes are going to be restored. Reason number two, and our enemies are going to be punished. This is great news. And in fact, jump down uh, to verse 5. As part of this great news, 
God says through the prophets Israel, strangers will now shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. In other words, while they were in exile, the strangers and the foreigners oversaw them, but God someday promises to have the strangers and foreigners serve under them instead of serve over them. Okay, it's a complete reversal. Are you with me on this? Am I, I feel like English and I are having a difficult time today. So what I want you to see is there are these three pieces, Isaiah 61, and then you have two stories from First and Second Kings that kind of seem all random, and why are we doing all of these things? Go to Luke chapter 4, and we're, gonna, we're actually going to encounter a text where Jesus makes reference to all of this. Luke chapter 4. And this is so tricky. There's so much here, you can't do it justice in 35 minutes. And so literally, it's like, what do you not say and what do you say? There's so much going on here. I want to read the whole text, though, because it's kind of a weird story just at its face. Verse 14, Luke chapter 4. Jesus returned to Galilee. Where's he returning from? Wilderness. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and enjoying the praise of everyone. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. So this is Isaiah 61. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue was fastened on him, and he began... How about this for an opening line? Today, Isaiah 61 is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? I mean, can you believe it? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian." All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow on which uh, the brow of the hill on which the town was built, in order to throw him off the cliff. But Jesus walked right through them and just went on his way. Now, this is a weird story. Would you agree? So they're happy, they're happy, and they want to kill him. Right? They go from clapping to killing in the space of like you know ten verses. So what in the world are they so upset about? So let's go back through this, all right? The setting uh, is that, as was his custom, Jesus was Jewish. I know that's kind of an obvious statement, but we, we, we often look at him as if he were a 21st century American, right? He was embedded in his Jewish context, and so he goes to the Sabbath. He was a man of age, so he could go and he could read a portion of Torah and the prophets and the writings that day. And it was totally acceptable for you to edit a little bit, as long as you weren't editing the Pentateuch, the first five books, the Torah, you could edit when you're reading from the prophets. And so Jesus edits 
Isaiah 61 in a really interesting way. Fire up the iPad. Here's Isaiah 61 that we just read. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance. Right? Now here's Jesus' version. Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, period. What part did he just leave off? Vengeance, right? Because the Isaiah text says the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance. Jesus edits it, whoops, excuse me. Jesus edits it to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, period. And he leaves off the part about vengeance to the Gentiles. Now, if you don't think that is a big deal, let me tell you who was here in Nazareth. All right? Nazareth was in a region called the Galilee. And the Galilee was a region that was called the Galilee of the Gentiles because centuries before, the northern kingdom of Israel was sent into exile and Gentiles, non-Jews, populated that whole region. When the Jews came back into power during the Maccabean Revolt in that period, they started to resettle the northern part of the land. Nazareth was one of those settlements. And these were people that were so devout, they named themselves in reference to an Isaiah prophecy that had to do with a shoot coming out of Jesse's stump. And that image doesn't make sense to us, but Jesse's family... Is the, that's the stump, and there's a shoot that was David, and through that shoot that comes up, that growth that comes up, would come Messiah, was the idea. So Nazareth meant kind of shootville. You know, it, it was a, in reference to a Davidic promise. These were people who were zealously nationalistic because they lived among the Gentiles who could not wait to see God reverse their fortunes and see the vengeance. And so here comes the hometown boy. We've heard he's been doing awesome things. Jesus, take the wheel, is what they were saying in that moment. And what he does instead is he quotes Isaiah 61, but he skips the part they were so excited about. Namely, the vengeance to their enemies. So he's offended them, we think, first by saying, hey, by the way, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. But the scripture he quotes isn't the full Isaiah 61 passage. It's only the year of the Lord's favor part, not the day of vengeance part. The other thing you need to know, go ahead and put verse uh, 22 back up there. All spoke well of him. See, in English, this sounds unbelievably positive. And the majority of commentators take it this way. But these words can be translated negatively too. So all spoke well of him. That Greek word for spoke well uh, is the word where we get the word martyr and can also mean uh, spoke against. Now, There are reasons why this is translated, not the other one. I just want to let you know that one of the things I I found really interesting is this whole sentence can be understood a different way. All spoke well of him could also be translated people witnessed against him. And when it says, and were amazed, that word uh, in some cases can be translated shocked in a negative sense at the gracious words. Now the gracious words could mean either he spoke well or the words of grace. So you could translate this, they witnessed against him, 
Because the words of grace he was speaking left off the judgment part. And the phrase, isn't this Joseph's son, could be read positively. Hey, isn't this great? This is the hometown boy. Or can be read negatively. Because remember, whose son is he? Who is Luke? I mean, he's pounded it into our heads. Whose son is this? This is God's son. Right? In chapter 1, in chapter 2, in chapter 3, over and over and over. I mean, unmistakably, this is God's son, God's son, God's son. And everyone looks at him and they say, oh, isn't this Joseph's son? So you, you can read the whole sentence positively, which is what most scholars do. But there's a minority view that says you can read this negatively too. The minority view at least makes a bit more sense of the, the incredible like U-turn they do when, when Jesus stands up before them and says, hey, you're going to quote a proverb to me. Physician, heal thyself. Now, a lot of debate over what that means. Physician, heal thyself could be, hey, you're giving lots of prescriptions that aren't even true of you. That could be one. Physician, heal thyself could also mean prove it. Do the works that we've heard you do other places, do them here. Or, physician, heal thyself. I know this is thick, guys, but let's get the brains going a little bit. If I've got a sound intelligent, you can at least, you know, I don't know. I don't know how to finish that sentence. Which is validated the whole, if I'm going to sound intelligent, right? I mean, that just is self-contradictory. But, say, tiredness, whatever little filter there is, it goes away. So, physician, heal thyself could also mean one last thing. Hey, Jesus, do for us what we've heard you do for others. Do for your own relations what we've heard you do for other patients, in other words. The idea is that they were demanding that Jesus was going to do what he'd done other places. Jesus had already been ministering, and rumors were circulating about how great this was. So the hometown boy shows up, says, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And Jesus anticipates their demand that he would do big and amazing signs in front of them. And says, not only will he not do those signs for them, he then says, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And he uses, the word for acceptable is the same word for year of the Lord's favor, which is, which in the original language has this ironic twist that the man uh, announcing God's favor would not find favor with his own people. And he tells them two stories. Right? Elijah and Elisha. Sound familiar, right? Now what was so offensive about the two stories he picks? What was it? They were sent to who? Gentiles. So Jesus leaves off the part about judgment of Gentiles and then explains, it's almost like he anticipates their rejection of him and says, if you want to know what my ministry is going to look like, look at Elijah and Elisha and their ministry to outsiders because Israel was so disobedient. Can you see why these nationalistic Jewish men and women would now be furious at him. Can you see that? I need more than that. Now, thank you. (laughs) I want to make sure that was kind of the big point, right? Is that (laughs) if we miss that, we need to start the whole thing over. Because, you know, you read the story and you're going, why would they they be upset at this guy? And, And what it was 
is that whether you take their reaction as positive or negative, either way, what Jesus has done is proclaim himself to be the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. He's also contrasted himself to two prophets that were sent to people outside apostate Israel, thereby comparing them to disobedient Israel and somehow giving a flavor that the promises of Isaiah 61 were also going to be shared by Gentiles. Instead of God's judgment over them, God was now going to minister to them. And among those who considered themselves the insiders of the inside, this was incredibly offensive. Now, might there be any relevance in this text for us, you think? I mean, Jesus' mission statement was, I have come to proclaim good news to the poor. What's that mean? Well, the good news was that the year of Jubilee was now upon us. That Jesus was going to go to the marginalized, to anybody humble enough, whether you were religious or not, whether you were sinful or not, whether you thought yourself as righteous or someone who totally undeserving of God's grace, no matter who you were, Jesus was now anointed by the Spirit to proclaim the good news that the Jubilee idea was now embodied in His person and He was going to release captives and bring sight to the blind and set people free. But He was going to do it in a way that was much broader than the Jews that he was speaking to conceived of. And so he points to two Old Testament stories to say, you know, there were lots of widows who didn't receive what this widow Gentile did. And there were lots of lepers who didn't receive what this commanding general received. And so all the insiders went, this is too much. They took him up to the brow of the hill to push him off to stone him as a false prophet. That's what they were doing there. He was a false prophet and a rebellious son of Israel, and they were going to put him to death. Now, the vast majority of us sitting in this room consider ourselves insiders. And if you've been paying attention to social media this last week, there's been some really interesting conversations about world vision and sponsoring children and all sorts of things, and we find ourselves in the middle of these cultural tides and arguments, one of the things that this text calls into question is have we ceased being good news people? I mean, if the proclamation wasn't day of vengeance, but was instead the proclamation of good news, are we known more for what we're against than what we're for? And I'm not making a commentary on the decision by World Vision. If you don't even know what I'm talking about, then this illustration is totally pointless. But anybody, you know, kind of uh, a part of social media knows exactly what we're talking about because there was this massive kerfuffle. Is that a, is that a word, kerfuffle? Boom. Drop the mic. Kerfuffle. So there was this massive discussion, and, and, and there was all kinds of fallout and all, just crazy, 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 and I'm just grieving as I'm reading all of this for so many reasons. Yes, there are things we need to be against in our culture, no question, but there's a sense in which I wonder if our insider status puffs us up so that if Jesus were here, who would he offend us by announcing the proclamation of good news to What group would he use? What Old Testament stories would he refer to? Because I I, I see in me and I see in the church the tendency to somehow get life 
from the idea that we've got it together and those pagans out there, they're worthy of vengeance. And, and, and a text like this calls before us what is our role as good news people? Right? Are we announcing vengeance or are we announcing good news? And one of the things that was so offensive is that Jesus offended the insiders by announcing good news to those on the outside. And I can't help but think if he were here speaking to us, he might do a very similar thing. Because the most dangerous attitude in the kingdom is not a lot of the sin that we talk about so much. The most dangerous attitude in the kingdom is the idea that somehow we deserve to be inside and that they don't. See, the proclamation of the good news is the proclamation that I need grace more than anybody else. You want to know who the chief of sinners is? It's me. It's me. Because I don't know your sin. I know all of mine. So, I'm chief of sinners. Now, if you actually go around living in that kind of grace from your God, it doesn't, it's not hard to share that grace with others. But if you're living somehow thinking that you've deserved your way in here, look at all that I do for God, then it's very easy to get puffed up with self-righteousness and hypocrisy and look at people who are not like us and decide Those people aren't worthy of forgiveness. Those people aren't worthy of God's love. Those people aren't worthy of being touched by the grace and the good news of this Jesus. Now, we'd never say it this way, but I see it in me. And so when Jesus stands up before his hometown folks and he anticipates their offense at him because the shape and the contour of his ministry will be to those people the religious establishment has deemed untouchable. I cannot help but draw a parallel to our religious establishments and wonder if he wouldn't be doing the same thing to us. And it's not because you're bad, it's because I know I am. And this text drives me back to the fact that I'm the prisoner that's been released. I'm the captive that's been set free. And who am I to draw circles around the boundaries of God's love when God so clearly says, it's because of that same love I sent Jesus into the world. Now please, brothers and sisters, fidelity to the text, faithfulness to the written word, those are absolutely critical. But if our fidelity to the word causes us to feel superior then we're not being faithful to the whole word, which was when Jesus had the opportunity to describe his job description, I have come to proclaim good news to the poor. And so I imagine there are two kinds of us in here. There are people like me, your good church folk. Every now and again, I just need to be reminded that the circle of the people that God loves is a lot lot bigger than the circle the church loves. Right? I just need to be reminded of that. And sometimes... I'm offended at his scandalous grace. But I would also imagine sitting in this room, there are the exact people that Jesus has in mind as he's speaking. There are those who are utterly convinced they've fallen too far and they've sinned too much. You are utterly convinced that if anybody knew what was going on, they wouldn't let you in the door. And for you, 
What Jesus would say if he were here is that it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you've come from, and it doesn't matter what you've done. The cross is for you. His grace is for you. And if all you are is humble enough to admit that you need it, He does the rest. He touches us and He makes us clean. When we call upon His name, surrender our lives, we are set free from the guilt, the shame, the condemnation of our consciences and our culture. We are set free to now worship and live and love, being fully human, not just bound in darkness. We are set free. See, we've ceased showing the good news as well as saying it, that living by following Jesus is a better way to go. It's a better way to live than living any other way. See, the world is looking for people who are more kind, more loving, more generous, more filled with the fruit of God's Spirit because of their followership. Who are constantly in touch with the fact that they're the ones who needed rescue. They're the ones who needed grace. And in so doing, became, become agents of that grace and good news to everybody else. So, why don't you stand up? I'm looking at the clock, it's 10.36. We know the Holy Spirit stopped speaking at 10.35, so you've got children to get and lunch to go to. My, my goal was really to kind of provoke us a little bit, to kind of get us in that place of, ooh, ooh, to want to qualify it, to want to, because I think good teaching sometimes raises questions and not just answers them. And I live in this constant, okay, but when do I, and how do I, da, 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 and I, I think if you're in that spot, that's a good spot. And so brothers and sisters, I just want to commission you again as disciples of Jesus, to be ambassadors of reconciliation. That you do not go to church. You are church out there. And our world is so desperately looking for broken, honest people who found some bread and want to share where they found it. That's it. So, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, mighty God, would you remind us afresh of the scandalous nature of your great love. And remind us, again, of the nature of the temptation of the people of God to think somehow we deserve to be here. Father, bring us again to the foot of the cross. Allow us to see Jesus as big, as beautiful, as amazing as He is. And simply seek to draw attention to His beauty. And so, Father, have mercy on us sinners, we pray. Amen.